profit for purpose, not non-profit. You run a company by virtue of providing value that other people are willing to pay for, and in doing so, you're providing a positive social impact to the world. So you're not relying on charity, you're not relying on handouts. You've created something. And there are companies now doing that. They then go to Uganda and they set up shop and help people with infrastructure. This guy wants to make bricks or corn or one of that, but they just don't really know what to do. And they've got land and they've got hardworking people, but they need some infrastructure. So is that a digital play? Is that an app play? Is that some sensors that can then be put throughout the soil to determine how you're going to optimize yields? Is it doing something as simple as that and being able to then turn starvation and famine into a new golden crop? And boy, will people pay for the privilege. That is doctor, CEO, entrepreneur and drummer, James Fielding. And this is episode 260 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this is my podcast. Episode 260 of the podcast, in fact, with CEO, entrepreneur, drummer and Dr. James Fielding. Find him on Instagram and Twitter at James A. Fielding, F-I-E-L-D-I-N-G. More about James in a moment. Uh, if you're new, welcome to this podcast. What is this show? This show is a conversation that you get to be a part of. It's a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Sometimes this conversation, it'll be with a name that you recognize. Sometimes it'll be a name that you don't recognize. But either way, I guarantee it, uh, you're going to hear something in the next hour that you're going to need to hear. I'm going to promise you right, promise you right now, you'll hear something in the next hour and a bit or so that'll help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's what I'm here to do. Who am I? I'm Osher. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a husband. I'm a stepdad. I'm a bicycle rider. I'm a kettlebell swinger. I'm a dog poop picker-upperer. I'm a pressure cooker cooker right now. 
got my chickpeas in the pressure cooker right now. Um, that's what I'm doing. And um, each Monday when I make this show, uh, I have a chat with you. And I've been doing that every Monday for over five years now. So plenty of episodes. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're a part of it. I've got to thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart for the enormous support you've been giving the live shows that I'm doing as we tour around Australia. Melbourne, there is literally maybe about 30 tickets left for the show on the 13th of December. Once they're sold, that's it. I don't know how long it'll be till I get back. So if you've not got into it yet, uh, make it happen. Get the tickets, osherginsburg.com. Uh, that's December 13th. The venue's Chapel Off Chapel. There's two nights there and the first one sold out. So it's the second night, the 13th. Um, it's an accessible venue, which I'm stoked about. So just call ahead, make sure that... Um, they know that you're coming and then you'll, you'll be accommodated. Uh, also in Brisbane, February the 8th at the Powerhouse. Finally, we're on sale in Brisbane and I cannot thank you enough. The support has been just astonishing. Uh, the amount of tickets that got sold the moment I said it's on sale before Powerhouse had even said anything just blew us all away. At this point, the Brisbane gig is the last gig on the tour and what a way to go out in my hometown. Before the Powerhouse, like I said, before they even sent out their mailing list, off the back of just a couple of social posts alone, we sold like about half the theatre. So please don't wait around. February 8th at the Powerhouse in New Farm. It's a Friday night. So if you need to pop down from the Goldie or pop down from Kiwana Waters or pop down from Ipswich or pop in or up or over from wherever you are, you can make a weekend of it. It's Friday night. That'd be lovely. Tickets to all shows, osherginsburg.com. All shows are meet and greet. Books are on sale at all shows. And Toe Hider is with me for all of the shows. I'm so excited and I just can't hide it. I'm so, so stoked to be able to do it and I'm grateful that it's all going to happen. So how are you this week? How are you? Let's check in. Shall we check in? How was your week? How's the family? How's the gardening? How's the workout? How's the other things that you send me wonderful pictures of you doing while you listen to this show? How's the dog walking? Uh, you can tag me on Instagram or email them to me, send us your email at gmail.com. Just shoot a photo with the phone you're listening to this on right now and just, just pop it over to me. I love to see where you're listening to the show, where you're enjoying the show. I have to tell you, I've got to tell you about what I did last week. Some wonderful people had come along to the gig, one of the gigs I did at Giant Dwarf in Sydney, and that led me through that gig. It led me to be invited uh, to perform a play called Man Watching at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Sydney. It was last Sunday uh, on a place called Cockatoo Island. It's an extraordinary piece. It's an anonymously written play performed by an unprepared man. All right. So we know that the playwright is female and talking with the organizers, they've kind of figured out that she's about one of three people when you consider the subject matter and the timing, et cetera, like that. So, and she's quite well known playwright. And what it is, it's a monologue, which is an exploration into female heterosexuality. For me, it was utterly fascinating because the script was printed out on stage. There was a printer on stage and Beck, the producer handed me the script and then I began reading out loud straight away. It was just so wonderful to have that moment between me and the audience as we together discovered what was in the script. Part of, parts of it were, were quite heavy. Uh, the play covered all aspects of the particular playwrights of this woman's developing sexuality from her teenage fantasies and masturbation habits to her more elaborate and very detailed adult fantasies and, and sexual experiences. For me... As someone who only knows my own sexuality, it was an extraordinary opportunity to have an insight into what makes another person tick, particularly a woman. And judging by the amount of 
heads nodding in the audience as I performed the show. It, it seems that the playwright that she was pretty spot on in her observation, hitting some some pretty common themes. Regardless, it was a it was a high wire act, and I loved every single moment. If you've read my book, you'll know that when I'm on stage or I'm in front of the camera, I'm really at my most peaceful, happy place. And to be performing an unprepared hour long monologue in front of a couple of hundred people who all paid good money to see the show, it was absolute bliss. <laughs> It was great. It was great. Um, Headwise, uh, what shall I tell you? Headwise, it's been a big couple of days, a few bumps here and there, but I'm doing pretty good. I've been really honest with you about the anxiety creeping back into my life, and I'll be really honest right now. And I'm going to tell you that I went to my psychiatrist the other day. I told him everything that's happening and asked, "Is do you think I should go back on meds? Because it's important to ask. It'll be one year on the 6th of December, and this last month it really did have me on the ropes quite a bit. I was ready for him to say yes, I truly was, but he didn't. Turns out I'm just dealing with a normal run-of-the-mill work stress and that's kind of what work stress feels like and I'm experiencing an okay reaction um, versus what I was experiencing before when I was really ill. Um, And once those factors settle down, everything should stabilize and um i told you last week those i was making some moves around my calendar put some changes in there they've kicked into effect what do you know things are better already it's pretty good i still have my moments i sure do but it's not the permanent heavy blanket that you know was starting to to weigh me down speaking of which someone asked me on twitter the other day how i manage stress these days and i just wrote back i just really quickly just wrote back a really simple formula um didn't think much of it, but I wrote sobriety plus sleep plus gratitude lists plus meditation plus training plus nutrition plus acting with purpose in accordance with my values equals an okay day. Um, but that took a lot of people resonated with that. Really, uh, really, really resonated with that. But look, it sounds like a lot of work, but I promise you, those things they're mandatory in my life. They're the things that I have to do in order to live with the brain I've got. If I don't do those things, I do not have an okay day. The side effect though, it's twofold because I have such structure about my day. I end up having outcomes which are way more than I used to experience because I keep track of where I've been and I plan on where I'm going. And things that I never dreamed of happening have been starting to happen in my life and in my career. And that's just a result of me doing those things every day. I still have days that suck. And even when I do all of those things. However, the downtime is way less than it used to be. And I know that I can bounce back pretty quickly when I need to because I have the tools to do so. But a few people were asking how much work it is. And look, it's work, but that's what it takes. That's what it takes to feel okay. So that's what I do. And it's worth it to have the life that I get to live. And I do have to remember that on the days that I don't feel like doing all of it. It does help to be able to trick myself a bit by changing my reasoning. Remember um, when Susan David was on the show and she spoke about have two goals versus want to goals? I have tried to make every one of those things a want to goal. That is changing it from I have to write a gratitude list every morning to I'm the kind of person who writes a gratitude list every morning. When you identify with the habit or with the action as I'm the kind of person who, you then become, you know, that thing. So, I wanted to be the kind of person who does squats every morning while I wait for my coffee. I talked about this on the show a couple months back. Started with three. I'm up. I did sixty this morning, and I started six months ago. 
because I'm the kind of person who does squats in the morning while I wait for my coffee machine to warm up or at the, while I'm grinding my coffee beans if I'm grinding them. This, the formula is like you just, what kind of person do you want to be? Do the smallest version of that thing that that kind of person does every day. Before you know it, you're that kind of person. It's extraordinary. I'd love to know your thoughts and experience you have with that. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Let me know. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so let me tell you about my guest today. James Fielding is a doctor, drummer, CEO, and founder of a number of companies, including Ordera. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at James A. Fielding, J-A-M-E-S-A-F-I-E-L-D-I-N-G. He's from Brisbane, Australia my hometown, and is one of the young guns of the very hot entrepreneurial startup scene in Queensland. Now, James has quite a story to tell, and in this conversation, we hear about how he, as a doctor, chose to pivot into helping others at scale through the power of music. Now, as someone, me, being someone who has noise-induced hearing loss, it's people like James that really fascinate me, because he's found a way to fuse his love of music with his desire to help people and his desire to build a business that can bring him and his family and, you know, partner success, which is really quite a lovely thing to do. But he's so much more than that. If, if you ever thought of starting a business or putting yourself out there, this conversation is for you. If you thought you had to wait until you got overseas to start your venture, start your startup, after this conversation, you'll be fired up. I promise you. I firmly believe in my heart of hearts, and you hear James and I speak about this, I firmly believe that the future of Australia is nested in our intellectual capital. And people like James are the new frontier of entrepreneurs who stay here to build their businesses and bring knowledge and momentum to our country. A thing that for so long left to foreign shores where in the past capital and opportunity were more readily available. And as James clearly says, that is no longer the case. We're in a whole new world, my friends. And James and his team are just one of the many, many companies in Australia that are leading the charge. I know you'll get a lot out of this conversation with James Fielding. I'm grateful you're here today, James. Yeah. How are you? That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm really well, thanks, man. You get a lot of kisses from the dog. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There you are, Frank. That's good. He's just had a freak out because I had the vacuum cleaner out before you got here. And uh, like most, you know... Most canines, them and the vacuum cleaner don't do well. No. 
and small children. Pass around. I don't have one of them. I've got a 14 and a half year old. She's not that small anymore. She's not that fussed about the vacuum cleaner. No. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't really ruffle her feathers. No, no, she's, she's pretty cool. I guess the only thing that upset her about the vacuum cleaner is that she can't hear the, the, the numerous Snapchat stories that come to her every 14 seconds. Yeah. So she does the thing where she holds the phone to her ear. Perfect. Yeah, like it's an old, like literally, like it's an old-timey wind-up phone. She holds it to her ear, her ear like that. That's the wildest part. It's like we've gone back 120 years Absolutely. to holding our phones. What she should do is tether to another phone so that she can have the audio coming out of one phone and be able to still see the Snapchat story out in front of her like that. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a game changer. Have you come down uh, today? No, I came down last night actually. Right. I you're based. Of, in, I filled my day. Yeah. You're based in Brisbane. Based aren't in Brisbane. Came down for this, oh. for the honour of being on the podcast <laughs> with the one and only, and figured I'd see what I could do to fill my day yesterday. So I met with some interesting folks and went out yeah. to dinner and did some stuff. And you grew up in Brisbane? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Born and mostly raised. Bit of time in Europe following dad around for work until sort of preschool and came back. What was his gig? He's a doctor. So he's a surgeon. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, so both, both my parents are doctors too. Oh, really? Yeah. Dad's a surgeon, mum's a GP. A um, uh, lot, of, lot of medicine in the family. And my so mum retrains as a GP too. Yeah. Yeah, she found it's tough. It's very yeah. tough. Yeah. It's a noble profession. Yeah. And mum is one of those people that does it because she likes helping people yeah. and isn't particularly commercial, which is frustrating in a world where they just work so hard all the time. Yeah. And you're just like, come on. Like you, you could charge, like she got upset about charging for consumables. Like that's the kind of, you know, doctor she is. Like, oh, but I don't, I don't want people to have to do that. Like, yeah, but you're talking about 10 bucks mm. or 15 bucks in a world where people are used to paying 100 bucks to go see a GP and you bulk bill everybody. Like, mm. you know, so it's just a different. My mom struggled with that. She, she worked for the Australian Army for 15 years. Uh, she's, she's gone now, but she worked for Australia for 15 years and then as a civilian and then she retrained as a GP and she, exactly like your mom, she's like, this six minutes at a time stuff because they run, you know, the practices yeah. where she was getting work initially were run by big conglomerates. Yeah. Um, you know, not, not, not your little around the corner medical practice, you no. know, massive waiting rooms with yeah. apparently nothing but the Today Show on all the time. And, and six-year-old women's day to keep everyone entertained. Yeah, and, yeah. and screaming children. and But, yeah, six-minute consults. And it's then, nuts. you know, her at the end of the week going, yeah, Ruth, look, you're not really getting the, the, the volume that we need. She's like, what the fuck? There's sick, pe- there's sick people. Yeah. You know, that kind yeah. of shit she struggled with, I it's, remember. And it's really hard. Yeah. And it's hard systemically. Like, it's hard in hospitals. It's hard everywhere. Mm. And that was part of the gig for us. Like, we came out with a much more analytical view on the medical system. Like, I did this MBA during medical school, and the goal was to come out and fix public health. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that, was our, that was our mandate. Um, and we've had a crack, and we started a bunch of But you just you'd walk around seeing from a from a commercial point of view and a business point of view and a, it's hard to provide quality service to people on a fixed budget if there's a lot of waste mm. you know and could we buy the next mri could we could we do the whatever and part of it is should we be getting people out of beds a bit sooner so the costs are down so that we we're, we're saving where we can and from a commercial point of view that makes sense and then world of medicine it's really hard to bring that in in a compassionate way, yeah. you know, to get people to look at things from a commercial point of view, thinking big picture, as opposed to going, you've got billables. Mm. Not a law firm. 
you know, it's not charged by every six minutes and what spreadsheet have you got open. Mm. These are human beings that might need a cuddle. Maybe they, you know, brought their kid in as well. So now it's, you know, a 20-minute appointment and everyone's late all the time. But if you're a good enough GP, everyone sort of works that into their time and yeah. they come to see you. How early in your life was medicine a thing? Birth, I guess. Like that it was, you wanted to do it, I mean. Yeah, pretty early on. You know, it was always it was always part of the equation. It was always part of the story, mm. um, part of the influence, part of seeing. You know, we'd be out at dinners, and mum or dad's patients would come up to us at the table. You know, and they'd be like, "I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt. You know, I just really want to say hello, and you know, to to let you guys all know like how wonderful it was that your mum looked after me, or that your dad, you know, did this surgery, changed my life, and you know, and so that was always mm. seeing that. So it was. Yeah, it was cool. People started calling me Doc from a very early age. But I was just, I was always that guy that was interested. How does it work? Why does it work? How does yeah. the human body fit together? Uh-huh. You know, and dad had come into the sort of um, what does daddy do at school type things and bring in videos of surgery and all really? that sort of stuff to, you know, what kind of surgery three was? and four kids. What kind of surgery was? Surgery General. Was? General so surgeon. all gut stuff. He was working on laparoscopic. So he was part of that first wave of laparoscopic surgery went across to europe and picked it up and brought it back to australia and so oh. was sort of that's the, the pioneer band, the yeah. band that's used in some weight loss interventions yeah like the lap band stuff and then gallbladders and bypasses mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff so he had cameras in there where most people didn't so what do you do i'm a surgeon that's cool no, no check it out like yeah. it was all you could see it now and it was all guts and blood and gore and I just thought it was amazing. Yeah. So, dude, was he, hey, kids, gather around, check this out. Yeah. Pop the VHS in. Yeah. Wow. And, like, slide decks. And you'd be looking through back in the good old days of having to do, like, a slide reel. Yeah. And, you know, putting his presentations together to then go and do a presentation wherever and going on family trips. And, yeah, it was fun. What part of Europe did you get to live in? So, we were in Switzerland for a while, Scotland for a while. This is all, you know, far before my memories kick in. But then oh, you were um, a baby? Yeah, I was. Uh, okay. like, I came back when I was four. Uh, okay, then. So, you know, apparently right. I had a, a very cute wee little Scottish accent and all that sort of uh, stuff. But, yeah, I don't remember any of that. Right, right. Yeah. But your father was – it's interesting how the knowledge comes back to the country that he wasn't sent by a university or anything like that. He just went, this yeah. is going to be something that can sure. change lives. Yeah. Um, and it was very much the way, though, coming out, especially in the surgical fields, that you'd sort of – you'd go back to the mother country and earn your stripes. Mm. Like you'd come out and then you'd always go and do a fellowship somewhere. You'd go and spend that time and, you know, you're you're doing it for free. You know, you're taking out a personal loan for the right to go and educate yourself. Yeah. You know, but it's, yeah, it's a very different mentality. Yeah. You go and you finish up in the mother country and then you... You bring it back. Go and yeah. practice on the palms. You know, go and do it in the NHS where volume is most certainly not an issue. Yeah. The sec- I think they're the second largest employer in the world, I think. After the, right? Yeah, after the, US, after the US military. I think NHS is the second largest employer in the world. That's cool. Something, something like that. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's yeah. And having lived in a country, I lived in America for 10 years, having lived in a country with no public health or m- meager if yeah, at yeah. best public health, what you're talking about, about billables and things like that. I've seen the bill for $1,500 to get a Band-Aid yeah. at Cedars-Sinai. It's insane. It, yeah. I, I normally <laughs> have issue like, with people using that word, but yes. It is. It's because it is people doing things that are just purely 
illogical. And and just motivated by money, though. Yeah, absolutely. And it's systemic because it all gets billed back to the health insurer. Mm. So as far as they're concerned, and when you see the itemization for the bill, another another one was, um, you know, someone I knew went in and um, it was the nurse that put the IV in. There was four things. Uh, he was in the room for 12 minutes. And I'm not to diminish the man's skill or the amount of time he took to train or anything like that, but... It was almost like the kind of, remember when the wharf union thing was happening in Australia in the late 90s and they were going, people were doing stories about how many people it takes to secure a container to the back of a truck. And, right. you know, they were hiring four men for a minimum eight-hour call. I'm making this up, but like they're yeah. firing four men for a minimum eight-hour shift for one container and each man secured one corner of a flatbed. And I remember it was Peter Harvey or someone, oh, no, no. What was his other name? He died at the Beaconsfield Mine. I can't remember his name. Real kind of like blunderbuss uh, as right. a journalist. And he showed, he walked around a flatbed and went, dunk, 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 dunk. That just cost, you know, how many thousand dollars because four men were on point. I remember going like, that's a, just a rort. That's a total rort. Yeah. Same, same. I looked at this thing. I'm like, uh, it was literally like um, safely unpacking syringe, $300. Uh, assembly of syringe and line, $300. Uh, insertion of line, $800. Uh, monitoring of line, $400. When, when he I came think back about, in 20 minutes later. When I think about how many IVs I've put in <laughs> and, and, how, and how many late night, like, sorry, that, that IV was king, you know, doing doing the night shift and you cover sort of the whole hospital, yeah. either as the surge resident or the med resident sort of stuff. Oh, imagine if I was charging a thousand bucks a line. <laughs> well, I don't think you worry, see it. Wouldn't I, worry about I don't think you see it. I think it goes back to see the cyanide. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, you know, because yes, that nurse is not making fifty thousand no, dollars a night. No. That's for sure. Hell no, no. It's but it's just it was just the system that had been over many, many, many years just gamed to. Well, they're paying insurance premiums anyway. Yeah. Let's just get them. Yeah. And it, it, it just it's if you don't have insurance in that country, you are fucked. Yeah. There is no question. So when you uh, – where did you study medicine? UQ. All right. So I, I managed to be at UQ for about 10 years, Ripper. all things said and told. Still live in St. Lucia, just down the road. Absolutely love it. But It's an amazing yeah. part of it. I used to live in, I used to live in St. Lucia. Oh, yeah. Well, Turinga. We were next door. Hey, it's all the same. Still on Swan Road. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's a beautiful, extraordinary campus. And, it, and now you've got that bridge, you go straight to West End. It's not even funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, yeah. and little kids, we go down there, we run around, you know, there's the lakes down there, they're all filled with turtles and ducks. Mm. And, you know, we yeah. walk there. It's, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. But you did an MBA at the same time. Why? Because when, before medicine, I couldn't pick business or medicine, so I did both. And when I graduated high school, I did a business degree and a science degree because I knew I wanted to do medicine, but I knew it wasn't always going to be just medicine. I had mm -hmm. the medical influences. I also had business influences. And, you know, my grandma is an absolute powerhouse. She runs motels and real estate and she's 85 and she still goes to work every week, you know, cracking skulls and running all that. So it was always going to be something else alongside the medicine. My yeah. parents were like, be sure, you know. It's not the glory days we grew up with, all that sort of stuff. And so it was just really be sure. There's so many things you could do. And so during the business and the science, 
I spent some time in a hedge fund in New York and I worked in a casino in Vegas for a month as a 19 year old. And then, you know, I graduated and had six months up my sleeve. So, you know, I did the New York hedge fund thing and worked in a movie production house with a guy that shall not be named and won an Oscar for King's Speech. And then <laughs> I came back and did medical school. So when they said, hey, we want to do this business course with all the business professors that sort of analyze the the more corporate and, and business side of medicine and we're giving away these scholarships to do it. I was like, yeah, I'm in. And so went and ticked the box. And so they gave 10 of us out of the 500 this scholarship to run through and do sort of MBA subjects alongside our medical degree. Wow. So it was, it was, it was fun and it was a really good opportunity to just do something different, you know, because... It's a horrible thing to say, and I shouldn't say it, and that sort of stuff. But the first couple of years of med school are really easy. Like, it's, it's science, and you sit down, and you read books, and you go to lab classes, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and this was, you know, a way to sort of stretch the muscle and have a look and sit down and talk to people about other sides of business and see what they think. And that's where I met my business partner, Chris. You know, so we, we came out of that world having battled across boardroom tables for four years and, you know, seeing all that and seeing... There were lots of different personalities. Mm. And that's really where the higher education stuff comes in, I think. You learn stuff, but you can read books. The internet's everywhere now. So if you want information, you can get it. But the chance to sit around and, and sort of talk shit with people and see how they view it, how they think about it, what matters, that was, that was pretty incredible. So that's what you're saying, uh, to you know, make sure I get it right, is that the value of that higher education, tertiary education system, which used to be we're the only people that can show you this, so yeah. you have to come and spend your years here and only yeah. here. Now it's less that it's more you can find what we're going to show you anywhere, yeah. but we're the only people that can connect you. Yeah, with, I think so. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I think so for sure. And I think there is, there is obvious skills-based acquisition you know, in a field like medicine for sure. Like yeah. You're doing actual practical mm. skills, right? But in terms of, you know, MBA courses online and all that sort of stuff, it just comes down to the network. Like the only way that Harvard can justify charging you 200 grand to spend 12 months sitting in Harvard is because the people you sit around with are about to take over the world, you know, and that network is going to be truly world-changing. But you can read all the Harvard stuff. I've read it. It's part of most MBA courses worldwide. Like here's the case study. Here are the professors. Here's their thoughts. You can get a lot of it online. But there's that world of sitting there and just engaging in open, honest, yeah. often ruthless debate with other people in a safe space that really lets you dig in properly, I think. I never understood that growing up in Brisbane. I never understood that, oh, the people that – it's the value of university isn't what you learn. It is the people that you go there with because yeah. it is in the time when you're getting to know someone that you then you – yeah. you either meet them, you meet their parents or you meet their boss where they work or – or whatever Absolutely. you know i have no and, and now that i know that and audrey and i know that we are you know just i see the possibility for georgia now because she's only you know four or five years away from uni yeah i see the possibility of her career in her mid-20s like there's no doubt there's no doubt her first internship will be with someone we've already met now at for 14 because sure. right. you could get her that internship next year and that's the interesting piece yeah. and that's the part that i think is going to be really interesting over the next probably 10 years, and I was talking about this with a guy yesterday as well, around this idea that you would go to uni for a skills base. You would go to then come out with a skill set and then that be part of, you know, 
the networking and the and the cauldron that is, you know, how people can get ahead and how you yeah. get a leg up and all that sort of stuff. Because I was especially having little kids, I read I read stuff about the future and all that, and a really interesting piece was around the only thing that's going to matter in the future is EQ because knowledge will slowly become redundant. And as people burn all their social skills by only being able to communicate over text or over Snapchat or over any of that sort of stuff, the kid that can sit down and look the other human being in the eye, ask them how they're feeling and ask them to do them a favour or suggest that they do something a different way, that's the kid that rules the world. Like that's the kid that is always going to be safe and secure and be able to prosper because everyone else is sort of, there's this kid, you know, is too unruly, you know, we'll use the iPad or, or we'll use the stuff. And I'm not against that, but it has to be truly balanced with this idea that sometimes you're going to be uncomfortable and sometimes having a tough conversation with someone sucks, but you're going to survive and you're going to be better off for it. And tantrums most times are short lived but teaching that you always have to say hello and goodbye and you always have to have that human connection because when the robots start ruling the world, you know, it's going to be that person that can truly connect with other human beings that's going to be able to actually survive, I think. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, but I'm fresh off the back of reading Yuval Noah Harari's latest book, so I'm, <laughs> I'm 100% ah. along with you because yeah, that's, right. that's all there is. That's yeah. all there is is how we make other people feel. Yeah, and how other other people make us feel, because that's all yeah. we've got yeah. at this at this point. Until until the algorithms figure out a way to make us feel, which won't be long. They already do, though, right? Yeah, they kind of like do. all that. You see what you look for True. as you scroll through your gram and the Facebook yeah, and all the stuff. You're getting fed the stuff that reinforces your own sense of self and yeah. all that sort of jazz that everyone's always you know talking about. It's real about. though. Yeah, well, you it's keep real. listening to the same podcast you keep listening to the same radio show you keep listening to the same people with the same point of view telling you their views on the world and if you don't ever expand outside of that the algorithm is winning <laughs> day by day it is taking over your viewpoint on the world it's absolutely absolutely true uh when you met your business partner in university at what point did you try a few things like what what was the first thing you you branched out into um headphones yeah. To be honest, so why? so why headphones? He came to me at the graduation ceremony of this MBA thing, and he said, "I've been having trouble with patients out at this ENT clinic. They need hearing tests. They aren't getting them. I've got a couple of buddies that can help me make this medical device to do hearing tests on people." And he's a former mechatronics, you know, PhD was deployed in the military was you know i think it was he was in afghanistan anyway so he was on deployment and he was bunking with the trauma surgeon because they put the engineer and the doctor together and said what you do is more fun than what i do and so he came home and got into medicine so when he told me that he can make a device that goes beep i believed him and so we set about and then two days later i went off on my honeymoon for five weeks and i couldn't shake it you know he said i want you to be part of this you know, you love music, you get business. We've been doing this for four years now. Like, I trust that we can make it work. Are you in? I was like, yes, I'm in. I think that's amazing. I really want to be part of that. And then when we came back, we transitioned it across into the musical device it is now. But in that time, there was, we want to make this hearing test device. 
and then he went to an orthopedics conference and came back and said, there's problems with total wrist replacements. I reckon I've got a solution. I'll bet you have. Let's go. And we did it again. And then we did it again for some camera technology. We did it again for the mental wellness chocolate company that we've spoken about before. You know, and it was just, here's a problem. I think I can fix it. Let's get the resource around it. And let's just actually do it. And so, yeah, we did it a lot. Um, and in that first 12 months, it was absolute mayhem. Yeah. You know, starting off as junior doctors, Kim was pregnant. We were finishing off night shifts in the emergency department and then going back to the uni for this business accelerator course that we'd gotten into. And then we raised the money to start getting the prototypes together and building the crew and getting the team off. Then we did it again for the other one. So we'd funded up two companies in six months while being junior doctors. And it was just, it was incredible and it was so much fun. But it was, yeah, it was overwhelming. But yes, we tried a lot. And we built a little idea factory and we had lots of little bits and pieces going all the time and had that age-old struggle of we've overextended a bit, we're going to have to pay back and some will work and some won't. And what are the ones that are just cool ideas and what are the ones that are companies and worth really sinking your teeth into? Mm. And so, yeah, we went through that sort of maelstrom for the first yeah. sort of 18 months. What's your Elon Musk flamethrower and what's the affordable car for the general public? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And and Chris is my Elon Musk. Oh, really? And I am his Richard Branson. <laughs> you know, like I'm the guy that's like, yeah, I'm going to charter the plane and fly across the world and, and pick up that war-torn diplomat. And I think that's going to be super fun. And then when I come back, I'm going to get the musicians. We're all going to sit around and sing about it. And then he's like, all right, but I'm going to build that plane. And then we get, you know, so it was a really interesting dynamic because he's such an engineer. Yeah. And I'm such an over-optimistic sort of fun loving love the adventure love the crowds love the whatever uh-huh. so it really sort of you know stuck i think so when uh, aside from the the, the medical thing yeah. w- when did music start when did you notice the music started to change the way you felt in your body oh uh, five years old started playing piano started loving that i could play piano but really the tipping point for me was when my mum finally let me get a drum kit because drumming drumming is my that is my safe place my happy place my meditation my zen my recovery all of it is me on a drum kit playing with people and we're in sync and the crowd is loving it or even if there isn't a crowd and we're just rehearsing like that's my everything that's my the the world can disappear in that point that's my catharsis that's my bawling my eyes out listening to Powderfinger because my best mate just died. That's drumming. Like, that was all of that. Because it, it's physical. It's front brain. It's everything, you know? And then you, you become so good at it. I started drumming when I was 10. You know, I'm 30 now, so I've had some years' experience, right? You become so good at it that you don't have to think about it. And then when you can be so engaged in something you're not actively thinking about it, there's a sense of freedom there that's really incredible. So and you had so, a band for a while? Yeah, I had a band for a while. Still do. We play the occasional wedding and parties and bits and pieces. So if you're looking for the Dash Hounds, we are still alive, we promise. Um, but, yeah, I did the whole hard rock band thing coming out, you know, 18, 19, doing stuff, and then met some guys playing a little covers gig down at the local rugby club, and then that became the Dash Hounds, two acoustic guitars and me. And then we'd run around and, like, we've played you know, little little events and parties and bits and pieces, a couple hundred people, me and one acoustic guitar. 
yeah. you know, and all that sort of fun stuff. We released a few EPs. We did all that sort of fun stuff. We let the let the creative juices flow and yeah. met an incredible guy in med school who's, you know, bass player, keyboard, strings, vocals, all of it. And so brought him into the fold, yeah. which was super fun. And then, yeah, I've, I've sort of always played and always loved playing. And, and especially the, the drumming side of stuff because I never had to take any tests. You know, piano was very much, there was always tests and theory and all that sort of stuff. And I did that in senior of high school. So I did my grade six and my theory and all that sort of stuff. And I was much better at maths and physics. So it ended up that I didn't use it as a result. But um, it was just something that I was always encouraged to do. And I'm forever grateful to my parents for that. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. Like mum's rule was no debating, no rugby. So I had to always do debating as well, which I did love, but it was always, you know, something that wasn't there. But piano, absolutely. Like you had to turn up, you had to do it, you yeah. had to commit. I'm of the firm belief that because I studied music at school and it was all I did until I started in radio till I was, when I was around. Oh, actually, pretty much I kept it up until I was around 25 when I started at Channel V. Um, I always lamented now, as an adult, and I'm just thinking it now while I sit here with you over my kitchen table, um, that that I didn't learn how to fluently speak another language. Mm. But I actually did. Absolutely. The international language. I learned how to, spe- I learned how to speak music. Yeah. I learned how to, well, at least the, as we know it, the Western tonal structure of the 12-note 12, 12 yeah. chromatic scale and the chord structures that come out of that and the harmonies that come out of that. And but I'm sure you can handle blues too. I'm sure you can oh. You can run that around and, and twinkle on some drop sevens and all that fun third. stuff. <laughs> no, no, I don't, mind, I don't mind bending up to a flat third. That's okay with me. Uh, or from a flat third up to a fourth. That's always fun. Um, but yeah, it, I feel though that what that gave me is it made my brain work in different directions that my brain then used still used those directions, even though it wasn't speaking music at the time, it still used those different thinking pathways. And mm. that helped me enormously in in my career from learning how to speak music. Yeah. Basically. Absolutely. Um, but it's interesting you just just briefly describe your your time on stage. A lot of brain power up on stage. A lot of a lot of thinking a lot of thinking people up on stage. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh not for me. I'm a drummer, it's easy. Oh, yeah. for you, yeah. You've been doing it since you were 10. As long as my right foot doesn't let me down, it's everything I can, is okay. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like I can turn up to a wedding now and play any song with any person at any time because you focus on the simplicity and the purity of a beat. As long as you don't get in anyone's way, yeah. they're having a good time. So... That you're, I'm assuming, considering what you described about your own personal family life, there is an electric kit at home. Uh, there is an electric kit. Yeah. And then when I was 18, I got a proper big boy kit. Yeah. And that was game changing. But now you have, a, you have an electric kit now? Well, it's in the garage and it's tricky. I did have my kit set up in the office for a while, but we just started using rehearsal studios. Right. So when I was 18, um, we went to you know the little spot in Bowen Hills and paid our 20 bucks a week to have our full stuff and set sleep up. It there. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise yeah, it's a punish to pull it up and put it down. I remember doing that. Yeah, Bowen Hill. Was it, what was it called? Red Red Star was one of them. Red Zeds? Yeah. Red Zeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recorded an album there. No, we mixed a album there. Love Joe mixed a record for us. That's cool. At Red Zeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool. He's an interesting guy. Hey, he's sure. <laughs> he's, he's, a, an, he's an interesting guy. <laughs> 
interesting he's guy. an interesting cat. If you ever really want some fun, go and check out his his uh, his band, Sister Creep. They were called. They were. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it's like a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but when so when it comes to drumming, and I'm sitting across the table from you wearing hearing aids. Yeah. Through not only my time in um, the kind of funk metal band that I was in for many years, but also through radio. Yeah. And also through enjoying music. Uh, quite loud. Yes. Uh, was hearing, hearing protection a thing that you considered from early on? Yeah, I, I got the proper plugs. Um, how did, did you that. even know to do that? Um, Why did, how did it become important to you? I guess the medical side of it and science side of it and all the rest of it, but just, it was just too loud. And it was just that easy. Like we'd go to these rehearsal studios and all the guys that I was in the band with, you know, they worshipped Oasis and, you know, they wanted to be the loudest band in Brisbane and all that sort of stuff. I was like, guys, but it's just, it's just too loud. Mm. And so I went off and, I, you know, we were using the foam plugs and all the rest of it. But I don't know, I guess I've always, I've always been that guy that would kind of do anything but in a safe way. You know, like I'm always, I'm always going to be sensible enough to be thinking about it, I think. And, you know, knowing that people are going deaf, knowing a bunch of old deaf rock stars, but just being there and going, I don't want to do this anymore. Is this too loud? And so, you know, I went and decided to do it properly and went across to the audiologist and got the proper molded plugs and did all the stuff. Mm. And I've had them for... I don't know, 10 years. Like I started wearing them when I was probably 18, 19. For people that have never worn earplugs to a gig, they might think that they might not be able to enjoy it. Oh, it's astronomically better. It just is because you can hear the music. Like we went to Guns N' Roses last year, right? And it was out at ANZ. It was massive and, you know, nostalgia. It was fun. It was all that sort of stuff. And Alex and I were there. He was in a different part of the stadium and the tickets were a bit over the place. And I went with my mum and it was awesome. And I've got my earplugs in so I can actually hear Slash. You know, I can actually hear the notes. And everyone else, it, it's just loud. And that's the part of it that I, I still don't quite get in terms of it's going to be loud enough to be isolating, right? You're going to be in a social environment and be isolated, which is why you go to nightclubs and why it has to be loud so that you can feel a bit more secure in your own space, right? You can dance and no one can really hear you talk. And it's, all, it's all consuming all the time. And the, the wearing of earplugs watching a show, I still do every time because it just makes it so much better as I see it. And wearing them on stage so I can hear my bass player. Because if I'm just railing on a drum kit and I've got a little fallback and it's then turned up full and all that sort of stuff, it then just becomes so loud as to be, you know, just unnecessarily loud. And when I was... Because I went to a drum teacher, which was great. I'd go once a week to Dave. He was an absolute legend. And mostly it was just him telling me stories about the Melbourne rock and roll scene in the 50s and all that sort of fun stuff, right? But he always had this philosophy that on stage should sound like your living room and front of house can sound like a stadium. But it's, it's disrespectful to have your on stage louder than the front of house because the front of house guy is working real hard to try and get his mix right and you're bouncing all that sort of stuff. And he always 
had, yeah, his philosophy was you should be able to talk to the guy standing next to you and you should be like it's in your living room. And it might not sound great to you, but it's not about you. It's about your audience. Mm. And that was his whole thing. And so I would always be saying to the guys, like, we just, we don't need it to be that loud. Yeah. And over the course of the rehearsal and the course of the gig, they're always turning up and up and up and up and yeah. up because they're just getting deafer by the minute. But yeah, that's, that's where I got in and that's where I got the plugs because it just, it was just crazily loud. I've never heard it. I've never heard it described like that. And I talk about hearing a lot because people ask me about my hearing aids quite a bit. I've never heard it described that the volume is at that point so you can be in a large environment surrounded by hundreds if not thousands of people yep. and feel safe and alone. Yep. I never heard it described like that and you're 100% That's right. That's the escape. That's the dopamine rush. That's the I can dance like an idiot now because the lights are down. You know when you go to that party and they just never turn the lights down quite far enough so the dance floor never quite kicks off and as a person who's lived both sides, like trying to start a party, trying to, you know, the second you get it just dark enough and just loud enough, the inhibitions go, couple of drinks under the belt, now you got yourself a party. Yeah. And, you know, that's why if you have the, the birthday party in the town hall with the lights up and the platter over on the side table, it's a very nice event, but it's never going to be a party. No. Right? You need that sense that now I can dance like an idiot. Now I can you know, try and hit on that guy or girl. Now I can, you know, because I'm, I'm in this space where it's all consuming. I'm so overwhelmed by everything that's happening that I'm sort of free to do what I want. I wonder if there's a scientific test as to what decibel level it needs to be uh, to get to that. Probably yeah. not a safe one, I'm going to gather. It, no, probably not. Probably not a safe probably one. Probably sitting somewhere between like 90 and 100, I would yeah. think. But there's a reason that the creep starts from about 105 and then by 4 in the morning it's about 115. You know, when you see these things, it just gets so loud and every DJ wants to be louder than the Talk guy. Talk to me before. about that. What's the, tell me about the, the creep of the volume over the night. So if you ever go to a place and you can see the decibel meter up on the wall. Um, they have that in Queensland sometimes. Yeah. They do. And they often have kill switches now. Yeah, I, I've, I've done gigs with that. <laughs> and so, it's, you know, it's like, oh, sorry. You know, yeah, my bad. So let me explain that to people. So there was an OH&S thing brought in in the early 90s because I was a roadie at this point where the three-phase power outlet to the stage ran through a decibel meter and there was lights above the front of house and if the lights were, it was green, amber and red yeah. and if the lights stayed on red for I think more than three seconds, so more than the peak of a snare drum hit, if yeah. it stayed on for more than three seconds or two seconds or whatever, it would cut the three-phase power. So my front of house guy used to say, I don't know, man, you, you, you plug the lights into there, I'll run the, I'll run the PA off, uh, off another circuit. <laughs> so the lights would go out, go yeah. out, yeah. But, so right. they have been trying to regulate it, but they still. Have. They have. And but what happens? Why does it get louder? So you just see this, and I, the why it happens, I think it's purely over time you just desensitize to the volume and so to feel the same as it did an hour ago it just needs to be that bit louder and the dj that's up there listening to this is trying to feel that same level of intensity and your ears over that time have been doing their utmost to try and shut off and protect themselves that's why you know you get out after a night out and you can't hear anything you know like people need to yell you you find yourself screaming to try and hear over because over that course of the time, your, your body's in self-protect mode. 
and it's trying to say, I shouldn't be listening to this stuff this loud. And so the world just gets louder and louder and louder. So you're getting hit with that same punch every time. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was about, I was about 19 when I first realized I had significant permanent hearing damage and it sh- scared the shit out of me. Yeah. I was, I was, I was horrified that mainly because other people could hear something that I couldn't. Yes. I had to that point, I had the experience that I heard everything that happened all around me always, the same thing that you heard, and that I was able to experience the world at the same time and appreciate the same thing that you did. I was, yeah, I was 19 years old, I was at audio school when it happened, and I suddenly saw all these people just react to a noise that I couldn't hear. I was like, oh no, I now don't have the full scope of the world. Yeah. And now I'm in my 40s, that has extended to speech. <laughs> and yeah, uh, like we, I, you know, I just let some workers into the house. We've got our bathrooms have just been redone, and, and the new cistern runs all night. I don't know. Shit's ordered to tears. I can't hear it. <laughs> Frank barks all the time at things. I'm like, what, what's, what's your barking? She's like, can't you hear the people talking down the street? Nope. Mm. So it's you know, it's, it's it's pretty weird having that feeling that I can't appreciate the rest of the world as yeah. someone sitting right next to me. Yeah. That's a weird feeling. Have the AIDS brought it back? In some parts, yeah, yeah. They, they're like hearing aids are 100% for speech, right? Hearing aids aren't there to help you hear birds tweet. Hearing aids aren't there, unfortunately for me, hearing aids aren't there to help music sound amazing. Yeah. Hearing aids are there to help you communicate on a vocal level with other yeah. human beings because that is the priority. Yeah, All right. Absolutely. So, um, which is where something like the headphones that you've made, yeah. I find to be really <laughs> quite quite great um uh let's talk we talked a little bit about it before um the over-ear headphones that you've made yeah um the 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 short version and i've got a pair and they're freaking great um the short version is you put them on and they run you through either an 8 or a 16 or a 32 point hearing test yeah that basically tests over your hearing spectrum it sounds exactly the same as when i sit in the booth yeah and you you click the button yes i hear it yes i hear it yes no i don't hear it no i don't hear it unfortunately my hearing damage is so profound that it doesn't quite go high enough <laughs> absolutely <laughs> on, yeah. on your product have you mapped it with your aids on i think i have i can't remember because you should i should yeah i'll do it after because it's very interesting to see where and how it's compensating as well. Yeah. And being able to track that. The thing about, and this, for most people, I don't think it'd be a problem, but as a musician, the aids haven't, for most people, it would be imperceptible. But for me, it's noticeable, a delay. And so for most people, they'd have no problem listening to music with it on. Yeah. But for me, like even long vocal notes when speaking. Right. Phase. Really? Yeah, because the it's only a few milliseconds behind. It's enough. But if you haven't, if you've if you've never worked in audio, if you've never been a musician, if you've never known to listen to this as a oh hang on, there's an anomaly there, you wouldn't notice it. Yeah. But because I've you know went to music school and trained in audio school and other so and worked in radio for so long, you know it's something that I I notice enough. Yeah. And it makes music, it makes long tones of music um, wobble. As, as if it's like a pitch corrector that's not quite right. Yeah, right. So I tend to listen with your headphones. I tend to listen with the hearing aids off for that, for that reason and that Very reason. Very cool. Only. I love hearing that, <laughs> and I love hearing these stories. And I got a few thousand of these out in the wild, and we're we're running around. And every time someone talks to me about how they use them and what they get out of them, and the fact that you, the fact that you know that and think about that and have made that decision, 
just makes me so happy. Yeah. Because we work so hard at all this stuff <laughs> and everyone has a different experience and everyone sort of, you know, will tell me how they use it and why they use it and what it meant for them and how they use it in a different scenario. And, yeah. Oh, I like it at 50% personalization for this, but when I'm doing this, I just, I can never go back to normal again. And, yeah. You know, and some people use it to train their cochleas, which is made me so happy you know people that have gotten switched on in their 20s um switched on i mean having their cochlear implant switched on yeah Yeah. so they've gotten which is nick go go, google that youtube some videos of kids getting their cochlears turned on it'll make you weep and you know these these guys that have sort of gotten the headphones to try them out and kick them around and see how they do and they're they're using them with their cochlears because obviously without they're not getting anything right and so they're using them as a training device now to understand all right what am i hearing through my cochlear today how how am i perceiving sound can i hear that better than i did yesterday and they're sort of engaging with this musical world and then they just listen music through and have a great time but these sort of yeah there's a very interesting section of people who aren't newborns and they aren't sort of 70 or 80 and transitioning from long-term hearing aid use and getting cochleas sort of in their 20s might be that they've got one healthy year and one side that gets a cochlea and it's this sort of I don't want to say the forgotten majority but it's this this world that doesn't have such mm. a great support network and so people are creating tools to do that like a buddy of mine's got a platform called Games for Heroes that's trying to create real world scenario training for adults with cochleas and that sort of stuff and so people are being able to use our headphones to engage in that world yeah. and sort of yeah it's pretty amazing to to get to get that feedback and have people really get it's behind extra- the product. It's, it's an extraordinary time to develop a product like this because previously it's this wonderful confluence of, of two separate technologies being available at the same time previously the processing would have all had to been done uh, on the device itself yeah. but now we have a supercomputer in our pocket yeah. That can take care of a lot of that. And this is the, tr- this is the truth for, for many fitness devices, many wearables, many things like that. Yeah. They just send an electrical signal and all the processing is done on the phone that tells you about your heart rate, tells you about your breathing, yeah. tells you about your pace, all that kind of stuff. It used to have to be on the device itself. Yeah. All right. And so you had these big bulky things that, yeah. you know, hard to update software and hard to update firmware and all kinds of, you know, all yeah. kinds of business. Um, but now you're, we're in this extraordinary space where various wearables and things were able to do things that they weren't able to do. You yeah. see it in smartwatches. But what's what's wild about your the headphones that you make, and there's a couple of these products out at the moment, mm. the idea that you can have a customized it's, – it's the Back to the Future 2 Nike of headphones. <laughs> it's the complete – you know what I mean? It's the yeah. completely customized fit yeah. for exactly your hearing profile. Yeah. Um, which you know, might not have realized that years of – I don't know, years of driving a truck or a taxi or whatever, yeah. your right ear is deficient that versus your left ear. Absolutely. Right? And headphones have always felt weird. Yeah. And then it's one, the ability One sound to, fits all. Yeah. You know? This is it. This is what you got. Do you like the way Bose sound? Do you like the way Sennheiser sound? All that sort of stuff. And you sort of had to, to pick and choose the flavor of sound that you wanted Yeah. Um, based on what was available. And we don't have to do that anymore. That's and that's that's extraordinary. And this is an early iteration. Yeah. This was, what do you see? This is Mach one for us. This was can we pull it off? My God, we actually made one. My God, people actually want to buy one. Oh God, now we actually need to build one and yeah. then get it out to the world. What do you What do you see as the future for wearable headphones and and the kind of stuff you're building? I think 
we're talking to a really interesting guy in the orchestral space, which I'm hoping to translate a lot of that tech into the mainstream, but this world where it's on, but you don't notice it. It does everything you need it to do, but you ever need to charge it. You know, the holy grail as the tech gets better, battery assumption goes down, drivers become more attuned. We can start dealing with different materials, different elements. You know, this, this holy grail that you can have something on that can protect you from the outside world, play music to an incredible clarity in a safe way, and that is adjustable to what you need at that time. And so this, this blend, I guess, between it being so comfortable that you would wear it all day if you want to and you can use it for protection if you need to and then it's always going to sound amazing yeah. for no matter what you want to do. And you can communicate flawlessly with it through all your devices and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, because part, part of the interesting piece for me is that I actually use my headphones a lot for video chat with my family while I'm traveling around. You know, so now I'm on the video. I can hear it perfectly, noise cancelling, all the rest of it. So I can be standing on a busy street somewhere in the middle of a crazy place, and then I can hear my kids and my wife perfectly, you know. And that was a really interesting, massive bonus. And seeing seeing that it's it's a tool, right? It's a personalization sound tool to use yeah. however you want. And as we progress the tech, that real world integration I think will just become more commonplace because the bit that we really want to work on is this idea that it's cool to care you know it's cool to think about the world and think about the way you're experiencing the world and protecting yourself so that you can do what you love forever and if you need hearing aids good on you for having them you know the whole of look at four eyes, you know, geek with glasses and all that stuff from 20 years ago, that's gone now. You know, so many people wear glasses, who cares? Glasses are a fashion statement. People wear glasses even if they don't need them for corrective vision now. And hearing is going to go in that direction. And I think the more we have conversations about it and we destigmatize the whole thing, which is, you know, as you know, just ridiculous to think that there is an issue with taking steps to make sure you can get the most out of the world around you. And so we'll go in that direction. And that's where I want to take the tech. That's where I want to take the conversation to a point where sound and hearing is mainstream yeah. and normal. And, oh, whoa, you've got the latest whatever. So you can hear the world far better than I can. And, mm. you know, oh, you don't want to get Alzheimer's disease. So you, like, good on you for caring about that. That's the thing that pushed me to get them. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, there's a combination of that and annoying the shit out of Audrey and Georgia um, because I'd lived alone before, before I'd, my, my hearing had plummeted in quality right. uh, quite significantly in the years before I, I met these two. And it was in living with them and living with people again yeah. and realizing if I'm not in the same room, they are not hearing me. And the essentially pouring gravel into the cogs of our relationship every single time there was a, huh, what? Yeah. You, you got, why? We don't even have a cat. You yeah. know, it just degrades the connection just yep. the tiniest bit. It just takes a bit of sandpaper. Yep. And just every single time. And I could see that it was degrading my relationship with these yeah. people. Not that I just couldn't hear them. It was just annoying to contact me, to yeah. talk to me. And I was annoying. 
And that was, and that, and my mom at the time, she goes, what are you fucking doing? If you don't use those parts of your brain, they start to shut down. Stop it. Get some bloody hearing aids. And that was it. God bless your mother. Yeah. Because the worst case scenario, which is far, far too common, is that it becomes too hard for you to listen. It becomes too hard for them to try. And all of a sudden, you just kind of stop, you know? And over the course of time, social isolation. And then, yeah, you stop engaging, you stop hearing, you stop thinking about it or it's just so much strain for you to try and stay part yeah. of the conversation it's just exhausting so you stop wanting to go out because you can't go to a you can't go to lunch with your friends you can't do any of that sort of stuff because it's just so hard and you can't hear anyway and you feel a bit embarrassed and all those sorts of things and it's just entirely preventable and that's the part that really got me fired up about the whole thing yeah. it's preventable you know, 60% of hearing loss is preventable and I think that is an optimistic percentage, you know. And 10% of Alzheimer's could be preventable if you take action early. Like, these are people's entire lives being destroyed in a way that can be stopped mm. and should be stopped. You're describing, it's wild hearing you say it because you are describing exactly what happened to me about, about 10 years ago when my hearing started to get significantly bad. Um and I went to go see the South African guy, audiologist here in Sydney, and he took one look at my test and he said, if I didn't know you better, <laughs> I'd say you were a 60-year-old boilermaker who never wore hearing protection. But you're 30, what's it, at the time, you're 34-year-old men. You've got to do something. <laughs> uh, yeah. But exactly what you're saying. Do you uh, want your life back? Yeah, well, because well, exa- I had started doing exactly what you're saying. I didn't know why I didn't want to go to dinner. I didn't know why I didn't want to go to a party. Yeah. yeah, maybe some other factors involved, but certainly around. I would sit there at dinners with you know eight, ten people, and I'd go, oh, I just want to go home. Yeah, and it wasn't. I couldn't. I didn't figure out until later why. It's like, oh, because I can't hear anybody. Yeah, and I'm just sitting here in the corner. There's this cacophony yeah. all around me. It just sounds like yeah. two blenders in each ear. We're going because the closest I've ever had is going to dinners in China and you know South America and all these these fun places I get to travel to, and they're all speaking Mandarin, like. You know, and I'd had that explained to me by a few people um, with hearing loss before and after they've got their AIDS and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you're sitting down in a room full of people that aren't being rude, they're being perfectly pleasant, and they're having a lovely time, and you just can't engage in, in what they're trying to talk about. And it's, yeah, it's isolating and it's sort of... Yeah. And then that, that nice person takes the time to come and sit really close to you and actually talk to you in a way that you can understand and can hear and that sort of stuff. And that's the yeah. only way that I've been able to experience yeah. it. But it just sort of, yeah, that feeling. But it sets, off a, it sets off a social thing then because if they see yeah. you being standoffish, then you start to get ignored, then you're reinforced. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I shouldn't be here. Nobody wants me here. And yeah. then blah, 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 Staying at home with Netflix is a better option. Yep. Yeah. That's it. It all, it all starts with... And then we can try and call, but every time we call, it's so tricky. Mm. And we can try and video chat, but then everyone's always screaming into the camera and you spend the first 15 minutes trying to figure out whether you can hear each other and you don't mm. actually have the... Con- you know, all these things are so horrible yeah. and so simple to fix. Yeah. You know? So we figured we should have a crack. (laughs) Well, I'm grateful you have. And and this is what's extraordinary for me because when I was in Brisbane, I grew up in Brisbane, I didn't know anyone, nor did I even know that I had permission to think of a business idea, let alone a hardware product that has never been created and put it together and make it. I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah. Uh, So I didn't realize that until 
God, 10 years ago, maybe a little more when I was about 30, when I started meeting entrepreneurs, like, you'd be like, what? 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 Um, yeah, in the same way that we didn't know we were allowed to write our own songs. We, yeah. oh, we just wrote covers. We just played covers because we didn't know that we, were, we had permission because we were from Brisbane. It wasn't until Powderfinger came along and we were like, oh, hang on, those guys went to school up the street. Yeah. Oh, wow. Maybe we can write our own songs. Yeah. So tell me about, tell me about the, uh, you know, your decision to, to build this business out of Brisbane. Tell me about the entrepreneurial scene happening in Brisbane and what's your – you've obviously – you've been to the States. You've been to China. Um, yeah. You mentioned um, – yeah. you've been to China. You've seen what's going on there. What do we – okay, I'm just going to get straight to the point. What do, we, what do we have as Australia? What do we stand to lose by not adopting a rigorous entrepreneurial attitude towards creation of new business in our country? I see the single biggest threat as it always has been to Australian culture is brain drain, right? And if the biggest problem we have is that our smartest people are poached by international companies because they're looking for opportunity, what an incredible opportunity for us because we've got some of the world's smartest people and we've got some of the world's most amazing education institutions, technical institutions, and we can do it all, and we can do it all from wherever you want. And as I was saying before, the internet's in most places now, so you can really get what you need from anywhere. And we have talent pools that are on par with anywhere in the world, without question, and I truly believe that. And in Brisbane, it's a university town. You know, there are two enormous world-class universities there. And when you meld that with a bit of gumption and a bit of go get them and a bit of government support and all those things, you know, when we, I mean, our medical school created an MBA program so that people would come out and have a crack at the world. That's what we do as Australians. We, we are inventive, we are resourceful, um, we're plucky. We're engaging. We're all those sorts of things that make, you know, the world love Australians and Australian culture. And until sort of the last three or four years, and it's it's probably you know still a very big problem. You had to leave to make that work. And the more people that stay, the more people that can stay, and the more people that should stay. And as long as there's opportunity, there always will be opportunity and it's a self-fulfilling cycle. And what we've noticed in the last sort of three or four years in Brisbane, and um, we've been lucky enough to be sort of quite a big part of the scene up there, having had some success and running around and, you know, we had a go and it came off. Thank God, and here we are, right? And you see that. And then people start reaching out, like, hey, could I come pick your brain about how you did that on Kickstarter or how did you actually get that product out of China? Where did you start with that? And, and I've got this really great idea, but I don't really know who else I would talk to about it. Do you mind if I buy your coffee? And the answer every time is yes. Yes, of course. Let's make that work. Come in tomorrow. You come to me, I'm, you know. And the more people that do that, the better. And we're seeing it not only in the entrepreneurial space, we're seeing it in in the, the business space as well. You know, it used to be if you want a job in money, finance, whatever it was, you came to Sydney or Melbourne, you know, and you did it as well. You know, you came down, 
because this is where the work was, right? And that's changing and Brisbane is growing. It's getting bigger. It's getting more international companies coming and being part of the scene and we've got the smartest people in the planet. And I truly believe that. Um, and from personal experience, like my dad is one of them, right? And he was taken across to New York because when he was doing his thing, fat people weren't worth worrying about so he couldn't get surgery time. But in New York, they treated him like a god solving one of their biggest problems. And so across he went, you know? And the, the more we can support and encourage people to use their skills and bring their value and not keep it at home because it's sort of, you know, colloquial and you should and it's sort of hometown rah-rah, but you just, you should be encouraging and supporting the people coming out that they can do it and they can have a crack and you can pull it off. And the more people that do, the more people that will. And then you're building another big ecosystem to draw talent to Australia rather than the other way around. Because you've not just created these these products that you mentioned you said you've you've created a bit of a, a bit of a think tank a bit of a yeah. yeah we had a little idea factory we get interns coming through all the time and i've always got interns on headphones and the orthopedics guys have always got this amazing intern pool and we work closely with the universities and you know we get um asked to come and speak at different university things and hey, I've got this guy that's looking for this job. Do you mind if he comes and spends a couple of weeks with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I wish I could do it a lot better. You know, it's hard to be running intern programs properly and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you put people in the world saying, yeah, you can do it. And it's hard and it might not always work, but you can absolutely do it. A lot of the guys that work for us, it's their first job. Some guys are working for us while they're still in uni, finishing off, you know, the kids. And I say that with all true affection because they're like 20 and about to finish their first degree. are just they're mind-bogglingly smart right and they want to hustle they want to build something they want something of their own and it's amazing it's amazing to be a part of mm. and the government's gone behind them in the whole innovation nation the r&d tax grants the export market development grants queensland have these ignite ideas grants so imagine a world where if you've got a pretty good idea and a business plan and you've got a couple of runs on the board and you're having a look at what you can do, the government's going to give you 100 grand, you know? And that happened for each of my businesses. They just said, great, here's 100 grand. And with that, you do the travel, you have the meetings, you build the prototypes, you get more runs on the board. And then it just sort of, now you're investable. And it all just sort of grows like that. And, you know, I'm intensely apolitical. I really... Like I am that Batuta advocate story of the rich white guy who says politics doesn't bother me. You know, like I am that guy because I just kind of get on with my stuff and I try and help people doing what I can do to help them. But the big innovation nation push that was the holy grail that we were really expecting from MT and all the rest of it, and it happened to a big extent and then it sort of tapered off a bit because it all just, the faff which is why I don't really pay too much attention to it. But those platforms and those programs, they make a big difference. Mm. And there's local government and then there's state government. And that's really interesting seeing those guys kind of play off against each other because the Brisbane government is an enormous government. 
the it's city it, council. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest city. in the world. Yeah, it's it's truly phenomenal in yeah. terms of scope. Yeah. And so they're able to put resources behind large infrastructure projects and, and you know, we had the Lord Mayor's Business Awards last week and I was put up as a finalist for Business Person of the Year, right? And there are people that run real businesses, right? But they're trying to applaud people having a go, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, I took it as a tip of the cap and I was obviously very chuffed, right? But to to put my name up there, and there was another social impact entrepreneur in there as well, James Grujon does a good beer co. It's amazing. You buy beer and the profit goes to help the Great Barrier Reef, right? So if you're going to buy beer, buy beer that does some good. That's this whole idea of social impact, which is really cool. And, you know, they put us up there as, here are the guys we want to be celebrating, in this world, you know? And so that is happening yeah. and it's real and the support is there. Yeah. Uh, what you're describing is your, because there was, a, and I keep talking about this, you know, I'm just so grateful that this is what existing now uh, uh, in that when I was a teenager, it was the best you can hope for is to go and get a job at something that already exists Yeah, and then cross your fingers yeah, and hope that that company keeps you on. And then, you know, I was still a very closing, the closing overs of, that as a job for life kind of world was yeah. just sort of happening when I was starting high school. But this idea now that we as a country um, using our uh, intelligence capital can create a future that serves us as a country as well as serves our, our world is very, very exciting to me. Yeah. And and for me, like I can't get behind it enough. I mean, having seen firsthand, I, uh, I used to spend a lot of time in Israel and um, – this is a country with no natural resources. They got nothing that can burn. Yeah. All right. So they got no. They got nothing that can burn or is shiny. Right. They got no gold, no diamonds, no oil, no gas. Yeah. They got no water. But next to America, the, they are the, the <laughs> next to the U.S. The most number of countries listed on the New York Stock Exchange are run by Israelis. Yeah. All right. It's, I mean, Jewish culture runs <laughs> L.A. It runs New York. Yeah. It runs, like it's it's amazing. Some of my mentors, you know, that are true friends now, you know, they are intensely still connected to the Israel scene. And yeah. it's, yeah, it's a really... But as a, as a country, they've just gone, we've yeah. got nothing to offer except yep. ideas. So here's ideas. Well, we have a hardworking, yeah. idea-driven people willing to take a risk. Yeah. And most importantly, I think, in terms of Jewish culture and Israeli culture, they will back each other and they will back each other hard. Yeah. You know, and it's this guy has got such a great idea. We really want to see him have a go. Here's 10 million bucks. Not, we really want to see him have a go. Here's 100 grand and let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, they're like, well, we don't want him to fail. So let's really give it a whirl. Yeah. And if they do fail, then that sucks. Yeah. And, but God, he was a good kid and he gave it a fair crack. Yeah. You know, that, that culture of we need to be supporting each other. And then, you know, the the whole historical origins of a need to be protecting themselves is obviously There's a all that for a well. different that's podcast. All, that's but, all, yeah, you know, precisely. It's, it's that whole piece around yeah. we we should be really getting behind the people that want to grow what we can do yeah. for the world. And they mean it. And they mean it with all of their being. Yeah, and I mean it with all my being here because there will be a time and you and I will see it when – Digging coal out of the ground is no longer a great idea. Yeah. And for a very long time, digging anything out of the ground yeah. is no longer a great idea, like particularly yeah. things that we burn. Yeah. Um, and our country has for many years run on that. All right. And 
we could be running on so much more. Absolutely. And so many more things as well, particularly when it comes to clean energy and water purification and things like that. Yeah. If there's ever a test country, (laughs) wear it. Yeah. You want to see if it'll work? Oh, but what if we disrupt the the 500 million square kilometers out there with nothing on it? I'd say give it a crack. Yeah. You know, let's see. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Let's build it. Yeah. Let's just see if it's going to work because odds are it's not going to work perfectly. Give it a fair go and it will eventually. You're, if, if you had, say if, you know, if Branson knocked on the door and said, James, loving it, loving what you're doing. Yeah. Um, here's 10 million and yeah. there's another 50 in three years or two years if you can show me what you're building is great. Yeah. Uh, but it's got to be for the world. What yeah. do you build? For the good of the planet. I don't know whether you can get perpetual energy for 10 million bucks. But I think home, safe home energy supplies is going to change the world. So something, you know, if it is if it is battery packs until we transition to something more sophisticated, but a way in which people are more self-sufficient in their energy supplies. So whether it's a blend of a really sophisticated um, energy conservation device for solar, something where every home looks after itself. I think is a game changer. I think that's a way in which you can have everyone taking ownership of their own space, their own consumption, because nothing makes people pay more attention than the bill. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And when you look at it and you go, man, my my wage is growing by 1% to 2% maybe. My energy bill is growing by 20 or 30%. And even though I don't really get what that means, the guys always talk about it on the finance shows and occasionally it turns up in the project. So like I get that it's a thing that's happening. And over time you start to see that, you know, decline. If you can find a way that says, I'm gonna take ownership over this that's easy, simple and effective enough that I can look after it myself, that's the game changer. Right. I think. I love the sound of that. Yeah. I love the sound of that. The, um, I was involved with the launch of the new Nissan Leaf, which is the highest selling EV in the world. Right. A lot of noises made about Teslas, et cetera, but they've sold 360,000 cars in uh, like seven years, I think. A lot, a lot of units. Very cool. The new one's got a 40 kilowatt hour battery in it. All right. And it's affordable. It's, you know, I think it's like, I don't know what it is. In the States, I think it runs about 40K or 50K in the States. Right. Um, Average household uses about nine kilowatt hours a day. So that means you could, you, the car becomes the ballast. The battery doesn't, the battery for your home power doesn't necessarily need to stay on your home. No. So the battery for your home power drives around through the day and then comes home, yeah. gets a couple of hours of juice into it, powers you overnight, away you go again. Perfect. Like sort of thing. Yeah. Because that's the thing, the new model, the power can come back out. Yeah, right. Um, in in Australia, the ones in Japan already do it. There was after the Fukushima quake, uh, people powered their houses for three days. Off, a, off a, I've got one downstairs. So like full disclosure, I, I own a twenty. This is my third one. It's my third Nissan Leaf. I fucking right. love. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I'll never buy. I'll never buy. I don't think I'll ever buy an ICE again. It's just that EVs are just so freaking good. Yeah. I've been test driving it for ten years. Uh, I think I've, I drove the yeah, I drove the first Roadster, the first model in two thousand nine. 
That was so good. That was terrifying. But it was ter- terrible design, but it was yeah. the scariest thing I've ever driven. Um, but, yeah, like stuff like that. Yeah. And what you're saying, like a self-sufficient power supply for a home. Yeah. Just, just ways in which people can take more ownership of their own world. Yeah. I think makes, makes a big difference. And it would, cha- it would change the world, for example, you know, for example, in, you know, in a country like Uganda or a country like Nigeria. Like, Nigeria is developed. But a lot of people in Australia have no idea how fucking massive Nigeria is. Yeah. There's 400 million mobile handsets in that country. Yeah. They can't <laughs> give you change for a 10-buck note, but they can get on the internet and transfer it to you. And they do the leapfrog economy, you know. They're using Bitcoin and things like that. And they're, my whole thing, talking to my mates about it, in the era where all anyone wanted to talk about was Bitcoin and blockchain and all that sort of stuff, and it still happens, but I've sort of put a bit of a veto on it because I get a bit over it. But once you start being able to buy groceries to feed your family, I can get behind it as a currency. My my whole thing was that it just sort of swishes around and nothing ever happens. Mm. When When does the worker go and get his groceries to feed his family. Yeah. And then you see it in Kenya and you see it in Uganda and they, because of the inflation rates and all the stuff, they don't trust that system and because they don't have banking, they just leapfrogged straight to digital. And those sorts of, those changes and their willingness to adapt to those changes Mm. is how you're going to see what everyone's trying to do to just make sure that everyone has a decent enough life to get by and people aren't putting up with abject poverty and people aren't putting up with living in a world where every day is harder than the one before as opposed to that little bit better because I work so hard, I want to see some improvement. And, you know, they're they're willing to try all these things and they're they're not restricted in the same ways that we are but... By the same token, they're not as protected in the ways that we are. So it's a constant balance. When it comes when it comes to ideation and, and thinking of things like we just spoke about Brisbane being this ideation and extraordinary innovation hub and an extraordinary place for international investment, and I definitely got the whiff of that when I first moved back to Australia in 2015. It's like holy shit, man! This place is this extraordinary. Like what you get bang for buck, yeah, real estate wise, oh, you could set up an international headquarters here in the bottom of the South Pacific and have a great time. And yep. you've got your employee retentions through the roof because a lot quality of life's incredible. Beaches here, the weather is great. The, the same great. price, yeah. that I, the same price that Audrey and I paid for this apartment. We could be living in a six bedroom in Barden, yep. ten minutes from town. Um, <laughs> good. Um, however, and this is what I discovered when I went to business school in Amsterdam, and it was really it was pointed out to me very kindly. <laughs> pointed out to me very kindly from a, a, an extraordinary, extraordinary woman who uh, she considers herself Palestinian. She lives in Jordan. And she said, your problem is you keep coming up with solutions for your problems. White male middle-class problems in a westernized country, great, good for you and your friends. What about the, you know, 300,000 We've got real shit going yeah, on. Well, yeah. So what would you say, you know, when it comes to, because there's extra, I mean, I remember watching once um, Shia Gassi, who started Better Place, unfortunately didn't work out, but he's a big son of microsystems guy. Right. I once watched Shia Gassi spoke and he mentioned, he goes, there are trillions of dollars to be made in saving the world. Not oh. billions, trillions. Absolutely. Um, so when it comes to solutions that can really help people, but also make them fucking rich Um, and therefore feed back into the ecosystem you described. How important is it for young entrepreneurs to expand their scope of problems that need solving by traveling? Essential and it's happening. 
So part of the crews that I work with up in Brisbane, there's a place called Impact Academy and Greater Outcomes, um, this place where it's this social impact stuff and it's we want to solve the world, but it's profit for purpose, not non-profit. You run a company by virtue of providing value that other people are willing to pay for and in doing so, you're providing a positive social impact to the world. So you're not relying on charity, you're not relying on handouts. You've created something. And there are companies now doing that. You know, I was talking about my buddy Alex and Ross and, you know, they've gone traveling. They've seen situations that they thought they could help out with. And, you know, they then go to Uganda and they set up shop and help people with infrastructure. And then, you know, this guy wants to make bricks or they want to make corn. I wanted that, but they just don't really know what to do. And they've got land and they've got hardworking people, but they need some infrastructure. So is that a digital play? Is that an app play? Is that some sensors that can then be put throughout the soil to determine how you're going to optimize yields? Is it doing something as simple as that and being able to then turn, you know, starvation and famine into a new golden crop? And boy, will people pay for the privilege. Yeah. And so I think it's essential. I think you need to see what's outside and I think you need to be having a look at how what you're going to contribute can be used worldwide, absolutely. When it comes to the world, uh, your your kids are about 10 years younger than mine. Yeah, one and three. Yeah, so Gigi's nearly 15. So it was about a decade in in, in the middle there. Um, What speed... Considering, um, you know, you've, you've obviously, because you're in hardware and you manufacture um, in, yeah. in China yeah. and you spend a fair bit of time over there, yeah. at what speed do things get done there? What's the, what's the, <laughs> average, what's the average cruising speed? I'm just asking, what's the average cruising speed that we will need to start to be able to have to achieve to, in order to compete in a globalized, you know, market? Probably about tenfold. Of what we're doing at the moment? I think so. But it's interesting when you really, when you dig into the value that we would be bringing to that development cycle, um, the the capacity to move and adjust and adapt, we just tend to take, and, and I say we, I mean, sort of companies that are trying to try and build things and be entrepreneurial here in Australia, we tend to take an approach where... We're going to take a crack and learn and adjust and move and do all that, but it's not as capital intensive. And when you look at a a city like Shenzhen, for example, you can be driving along a highway. Like we went out to visit our manufacturers and they're really lovely guys. We go and we have lunch with them all and all that sort of stuff. You know, it is a a first world town in a third world country, right? And so you're driving along. Then the next time you come, sort of three or four months later, you're driving on a completely different road and he goes, hey, what do you think of the new, the new city? How do you mean? Like, well, this was ocean last time you were here. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> and it's a six-lane highway with 40 acres of parkland and 40 skyscrapers. No one's in them and probably not going to be anyone in them for ages. But they did it. And you're driving down the road and there's an overpass that's been started not finished and it seems like there's no intention to finish it because there's one about 200 yards down the road that was finished 
So obviously someone's gone, we need to connect these two things. Let's build an overpass. And so the guys have started that next morning. They've started building the overpass and they've gone, oh, actually, let's make it 200 yards down the road. No dramas. And they just pick up and they just do it again. And they built that overpass. And we talk about in Brisbane, you know, the Cross River Rail and that sort of stuff and stakeholder input. And who are we going to do it? Maybe over 10 years with a $6 billion plan, we'll build this one. They would have built 12 and knocked down the 10 that didn't work and kept the two that were okay. Now, there are pros and cons to that mentality. There's a lot of human resource that gets thrown at these things to make them effective. But in terms of, you know, that, that just get on with it mentality there's a lot to be learned there because we had a look at running some stuff for our chipsets and our bits and pieces out of brisbane and oh that's a big job what's a, a big job and engineers love telling you it's a big job you know oh it'd be six months of of scope and planning we'll have to you know get the circuitry right and then oh, we're gonna want to do five or six, you know you go to shenzhen the chipset we it was in headphones six days later when we got back to Boston. Ah, you know what I mean? Because they just want the business. So they're just like, yeah, we can do that. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll, we'll punch this one on. It's probably not going to be great, but it'll do what you need for a prototype. Like it'll just, it'll get done, you know? And then it arrives and you go, oh, that wasn't quite it. And, you know, we've had our problems with manufacturing, right? Everyone does. It's never yeah. as good as you want it to be. But my God. And it was free because they wanted the right to earn the business. They right. saw it as exciting. They went, oh, cool. This is Australian doctor headphones. It's really interesting tech. Like, I can be the guy that can be part of that story. Here, what can we do? How can we help? What do you need? Yeah, okay, we'll get that done. Come up, have a look. Bang, here. What did you think of it? Did you like it? How does it work? All right, we'll make some more changes to it. You know? And they just do it. They never learn how to fuck around. They just get on with it. And it's amazing. And, you know... Again, the plus and minus of all that. The stuff we build here is a hell of a lot better and all that sort of stuff, but not that much better anymore. Right. When you start looking at how most of the things in the entire world are built out of China and, you know, the costs are coming up, which is why a lot of industries now moving Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, all that sort of stuff, like as wages grow and as quality of life grows and people start to demand you know, more for the world-class products they're producing, which they are owed, right? And then, you know, industry moves out to other areas to try and take advantage of lower wage rates and all that sort of stuff. But as you go around, yeah, that that speed um, is, it's scary at times. Yeah. yeah. My, my, I know it's extraordinary listening to you describe that because that's very similar to what my, my brother lived there for a couple of years and he described the same, the same thing. And this, we're so protected in Australia from having to bear the economic cost of development and innovation that goes at the speed it does here. When there's countries like that who just go, no, fuck, man, we're on. Let's go. Like you said, I'll do it for free. I'll build this thing for free. It, yeah. it won't be 100%, but it'll get you over the line and then we can go from there. Yeah. Great, let's just do it. Bang. Yep. Um, I noticed that in the States when I was when I was in the States and I, I spent some time in Silicon Valley trying to fundraise for this thing that I was trying to build. and um, I was like, they just want to fucking get it done. I was like, let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh, oh Jerry, call Jerry. Jerry's got to sort it out. Da, 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 Jerry, da. you want five million? Ha, that's cute. I'll give you 50. Yeah, yeah. Show me how you're going to spend 50 million in the next 12 months. Don't. 
<laughs> uh, I, I got, you got 10 minutes. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. My hockey stick just got a hell of a lot taller. Is that cool? <laughs> Perfect. Let's go. I'll give you a hundred. Like, let's, let's double down. Yeah. Okay. I think wait, we, we, we can't, for me, I don't think we can afford as a country to kind of sit around and, you know. You know. And we're not. The hustle is here. And we, yeah, yeah. we talk about it. And, but it is true. I mean, there are a few really cool examples like Afterpay, Last, you know, that big software mm. stuff. And that's what we're really good at. That's brain power, that's mm. strategy, that's planning, that's execution, that's people sitting around and, and finding solutions to problems. Yeah. And when you can then scale those solutions, you got yourself a behemoth. Yeah. Um, but I went and did this business school thing at Melbourne Business School. Thank you to Westpac. And um, we went along and we, we were sitting around and talking to Bernie Salton and all this stuff and exploring how the ecosystem of big business just hasn't shifted in Australia in 150 years. You know, we are still dominated by the big four banks and the big four accounting firms. And then you got a couple of the big mining boys and that's your top 10. And when you talk about, oh, but what about Atlassian? They're an incredible company, but they're not in our top 10. And our top tens were founded in the early 1900s. And when you look at the States, when you look at Israel, when you look at all these places, their top tens were founded in 2004 <laughs> or 2010, Yeah, you know? But then our big companies kept us alive during the GFC. Well and truly. And have kept us alive for a very long time. And we take that for granted. And, and we sit here having these conversations about how are we going to shake it? How are we going to move it? But when you look at those types of scenarios and you have to try and balance the fact that when the rest of the world was in turmoil, we got a hiccup mm. and all those sorts of things, which yeah. you really got to tip the cap to the guys that mm. manage that process. And in the safety and security of this world, we are given the freedoms to then say, let's push, let's try, let's mm. grow, let's do all of that. There's no reason we can't do both of them, man. Exactly. There's no reason we can't exactly. use this. You this leverage that the we've safety got. and the yeah. security and you put it to work. Yeah. And if we're going to have conversations about putting super to work, I'm all ears. Because <laughs> we're talking about trillion dollars that sits there and gets put into safe enterprise. And if you asked the people investing into their super, would you mind putting 10%, 5%, 2% into local industry, local business? So companies like Q Super or Uni Super or, you know, the Queensland branch of Aussie Super, you get Queenslander saying, I would like, because if you're just going to invest it in the ASX or you're going to invest it in some big infrastructure project, I'm totally cool with you taking a high risk punt on local business, local industry, or this, this field, I'd like to take a punt and put 10% of my super into the sprint for renewables or into health tech spending or into something like that. And then you start having a trillion dollars available for investment into small business. You know, you're talking about volumes that are staggering. And because of that, we live in an incredibly safe and incredibly fortunate world where the conversations that capture our attention are in a global scale minuscule because we've got the opportunity to push to do it really well. You know, when you start talking about the different things that we call a crisis, right? And because we just have expectations that are super high and there is a lot of room for risk-taking when you start thinking about the trillions of dollars mm. that are put aside 
for our future planning and our future security. And I think it would be a very cool idea and a very valuable idea to ask people, how would you feel if we were to give some of that money to local businesses? If the super funds were allowed to invest in the PE and VC funds here in Australia, rather than putting it overseas or putting it into bonds or putting it into gold, all that sort of stuff. Would you, would you be okay if we were to put, I'm making a very small finger motion here in this podcast, which I really makes no difference. That's okay. But if we were to put fractions of a percent into supporting local business and entrepreneurial endeavors, we would eclipse the world's financial investment because we've got pools of funds sitting there that the rest of the world just don't really ever have. That's extraordinary. What an extraordinary idea. Yeah. I, uh, I hope you're making moves towards making that happen. Well, I spoke to our federal minister in Brisbane about it and I've spoken to some of these VC funds and they said, yeah, it's tricky to get money out of the super funds because their job is to protect you when you retire, right? And so they should and so they must. But an informed decision-making, I think, should be encouraged. You have left me a lot to think about. <laughs> I am. So I want to. I've got. So I've got my two notebooks here. That's my business one. That's my um, gratitude journal and everything I write down in the morning to clear my brain out. And oh I'm, God, I'm, that's I'm a good to, idea. I'm wanting to reach to that. And just go. Uh, oh, you don't do a gratitude journal? <laughs> I'm very bad. You got to do it, man. Ad journal. Scientifically proven. All the stuff. Scientific. Right. Uh, just write you. down. Right. Start with ten. It'll take you two minutes. Write down ten things you're grateful for every day, and it it, ch- it changes the way your brain works. It's not some dream catcher shit. It's actually. <laughs> It's actually real, yeah. scientifically proven, and I write 20 every morning. And it, it changes it changes the way your brain perceives threat and perceives um, opportunity. Very cool. It, it's really clever. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, this has been freaking good. We could, oh, thanks, mate. I could talk to you about Australian innovation for a lot. You've left me with two really exciting things that I'm going to have to sit in my brain for a while and go ride my bike and then I'll pop out. Because that's when the ideas come. You've got to fill your brain full of shit, everything you need to know about it, and then go do something else. Then you've got to clear it out entirely. Then you've got Let to go your brain do what it's good at. Go do something else and then yeah. subconsciously goes, boop. Oh, wow. There it is. Because if you sit in front of a whiteboard trying to, trying to push it out, you'll give yourself hemorrhoids. It's like anything, man. <laughs> it's true, though. It's true. Absolutely. You do not get good ideas. No. I hear This has been great. Good ideas get you. I'm, oh, I'm so grateful you came around, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> That was James Fielding. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter at James A. Fielding. A massive thanks this week to everyone on the Facebook group for being such legends. A lot of support, a lot of love, uh, a lot of interesting conversations happening there. Osha.is slash FB group if you'd like to join. Once again, I'd love to see you at the shows, the last two shows on the tour that are still on sale. Just a few tickets left for Melbourne on December 13th at the Chapel of Chapel and in Brisbane at the Powerhouse Theatre February 8th. After that, this point that's it tickets on sale osherginsburg.com huge thanks to my audio producer andy ma thank you very much to my show producer rachel barrett of course mike mills for all the music uh, as always for the shows and the live shows and a special thanks this week to uh henrik and guy at acast uh, and new home of podcasting who have been uh, total legends to work with this week um thanks so much for listening you're amazing um you're brilliant and without you i can't make this show and i'm grateful we're making this show together 
Thanks for being a part of it. I love you so much for listening. If you need me through the week, you can find me. Instagram is usually the best way to find me or you can email me. Um, If you need anything else, um, I'll talk to you through the week. And uh, until we speak next week, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.